Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have Dr. Teresa Gonzalez with me to discuss Building a Better Chicago, Race and Community Resistance to Urban Redevelopment, published by NYU Press this year, 2021. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gonzalez. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about the book. Excellent. Gonzalez is a native of, of Mexican Chicago and uh, strongly believes in the capacity of sociology to redress social injustices and inequalities. As a feminist and a woman of color urbanist, Dr. Gonzalez is rooted in community-engaged pedagogy and scholarship and strives toward a practice of reciprocity in research. Her work has appeared in the Journal of Urban Affairs and Social Problems in edited volumes and on Academic Minute. Building a Better Chicago shows how powerful redevelopment intermediaries influence local nonprofits and reshape the urban landscape to further marginalize communities of color. However, in this book, Gonzalez also shows how these communities, by using collective skepticism, advocate for themselves and demand accountability from the politicians and agencies in their midst. I, I'm glad to have you with me today, Dr. Gonzalez. And and uh, I guess can we start off with uh, maybe how you came about this research and pers- decided to pursue it a bit further? Yeah, of course. Thank you for that great introduction. So I, as as you mentioned, Michael, I grew up in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago. I'm from Mexican Chicago, um, and you know, around the early 2000s, started witnessing what I came to learn later were the initial um, influences of gentrification within my community and was trying to make sense of what that means, <laughs> what that looks like. Um, why is it that certain neighborhoods get developed and marketed in specific ways and others do not? Um, and and what happens to folks then when they become displaced? So that was kind of my first entree into really trying to understand this research. And that's what I explored when I went into graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley. My interest then started evolving as I began talking to more people and really, really exploring the ways that gentrification is linked to development writ large and how decisions sometimes that happened 20, 30 years in the past start to frame what communities look like, where development dollars are spent, but then also, you know, in 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 response to that, how a variety of community organizations also respond, right, and how residents respond to the way these development decisions happen. So that was then really where uh, the the impetus of the book emerged, was trying to make sense of, all right, well, what does large-scale redevelopment look like in this city? What does it look like in two of the most impoverished communities um, across the city? And then how are residents responding to that in kind of unique and interesting ways? And your approach to this was actually going to uh, the ground level, a, you know, a Chicago style of research, if we may, although, you know, it's expanded beyond uh, um, Chicago, but that's really where, you know, the Chicago style got its roots. And and you went down and and talked with uh, the people in these neighborhoods, particularly two neighborhoods, right? Inglewood and... um, Little Village. Little Village. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Inglewood and Little Village. And... uh, yeah, could you talk a bit more about uh, that approach and, and and the value of that in, in the research that you did? Yeah, so I'm trained in this, as an ethnographer and coming into the project, I, I was wrestling with doing, you know, 
ethnography versus just doing interviews and decided I don't know I don't know how residents are understanding development happening in these spaces and I don't want to assume right a whole lot of things because this you know oftentimes in communities of color a lot of researchers go in with a lot of assumptions and I was trying to really you know minimize a lot of that so I decided all right let me just start going into Little Village and and Greater Inglewood and attending meetings and just talk to folks and kind of see see what's happening, see how they're responding and see um, see how they're making sense of these local issues. And so one of the really great um, aspects of ethnography is that you get to not only hear right folks and and how they talk about the world around them but you also get to see them put those words to action and so oftentimes people like it's not that people lie it's that we do and this is all of us right we we engage in actions we do certain things and then we rationalize them or we make sense of them and however we're we're talking about those actions doesn't always line up so the reason i say this is because a lot of what I was hearing, and and this was at, I went to so many community meetings. This was at community meetings and conversations with community organizers and conversations with activists and conversations with residents, journalists, you know, people at the city, was that the folks really had a lack of trust. They were not trusting each other. Um, organizations could not get things done because of this lack of trust. And this is why these neighborhoods were in such decline and experiencing so many social issues was because of this rampant mistrust in their communities. So this is what I'm hearing, yet what I'm seeing are vast mobilizations of residents coming out to community meetings, of being engaged, of asking questions of their elected officials, of people at the county level, of the activists and community organizers in their midst. I'm seeing community organizations working together, even if they don't always get along, right? I'm seeing them working together on particular initiatives. I'm seeing them holding each other accountable, holding the city accountable. And so this is where then I started asking myself, okay, well, what if all of these people are saying they don't trust each other, how the heck are they able to get anything done? Right, because we tend to think of mistrust as then leading to a total breakdown in a communication. Right, I don't want to deal with that person. Maybe I become apathetic. You know, maybe I disengage. We're here. Maybe I was like, well, maybe they don't trust each other. I don't know, but they're still getting things done. So, what really is going on? And so that was really then able to inform a lot of uh, the interviews that I had. Subsequently, so part of the way that I approach my work, and this is what I learned just kind of figuring stuff out as a graduate student and then um, have have really come to kind of honor giving, giving research that space, is that if you wait kind of a period of time just to observe and engage and see what's happening within any given space, not only does it create rapport, which is what right, one should be doing with research and, and what the folks are working with, but it also gives you a greater insight to processes that are happening on the ground, right? It gives you greater insight into all of these social relationships, and it allows you to ask deeper questions. When you're then right sitting down to have these, these hour, two hour, three hour long interviews, it allows you to ask deeper follow-up. So when folks would then tell me in an interview, well, nobody trusts each other, I could then say, well, but then why are you all working together? <laughs> 
right? Why is it then that you're able to get things done? And then they would say, oh, well, because of this, because of that. So this is where I think is the real beauty and importance of ethnography um, that not not everyone always recognizes. Yeah, and one of the, uh, one great quote that uh, I pulled directly from from your book when reading it is that uh, you state organizations are not free-floating islands of rationality. So I, I think maybe you touched on that when you, you said you went down to hear the stories from the mm-hmm. uh, people who are living their everyday life, getting to hear what they say in their interviews, but then also starting to understand where this rationality, these truths for them came from mm-hmm. um, beyond what they simply say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing is that we we tend to think about organizations and people as separate entities. And in many ways, they are. Right? They yeah. absolutely are. Like organizations are not people, regardless of what certain folks might think. But because we think of them separately, we oftentimes think they operate in like, right, these little islands. They're in a vacuum and they're not influenced by local culture that's around them. And part of what I'm trying to show in the book is that organizations exist in fields, right? Other scholars have argued this. They exist in fields and they are influenced by the other organizations in their midst. And they're oftentimes constrained in the decisions that they can make. Um, But they're also influenced by the people within their organizations, right? And constrained in some of those ways also. So when we think about how, how organizations operate, how people operate, we have to not Yes, they're different, but socialization happens similarly, right? Uh, networking happens similarly. It's just that the goals and the um, the efforts are different, right? And, and then another um, piece of this is this idea of collective skepticism. And you kept making reference to that uh, in your earlier statement about people having disbelief and people not trusting one another, but progress still being able to be made across organizations that were working together. Um, what is this collective skepticism that you that you mentioned? Yeah, so this, um, just to give you some background about where it came from. So I, I came, I developed this term, I came to this term literally sitting, this is the importance of podcasts, sitting in my car driving and I was listening to a podcast on just Merton's, Robert Merton's description of organized skepticism. And this is, you know, he talks about when we're thinking about scientific communities and their responsibilities to society, we we have to understand, right, that scientific claims should be subjected to heightened scrutiny. And um, also that sciences and scientists' ability to um, uncover truth, but also their search for uncovering truth allows them to disrupt power structures, right? So this really struck struck me as I was driving and I started then making connections between Merton's discussion of scientists in the 1940s to then my right interactions with these grassroots organizers that I'm working with in Chicago. So that's kind of like where I, I came up with the term, but then what does it actually mean? So this is a strategic collective mistrust that's used, right, as it's really used, and in this case, um, to task development elites. So when we're thinking about city hall, planners, developers, what have you. So it really tasks them to clearly outline what their development agendas are and how those agendas are going to support and include marginalized populations, particularly low-income communities of color. 
And when we're thinking about collective skepticism, I really want to highlight the importance that it is both collective and it is strategic, right? So this is in no way um, an apathetic mistrust where people are just say, oh, you know, they throw up their hands and they disengage or they become really angry and they feel disempowered, right? This is not that. It's a strategic undertaking by groups of people, right? It's collective who recognize the possibility of mutual benefits, right? There, there can be a mutual benefit when you work with politicians, other city power holders, technocrats, what have you. So when we think about then how do folks use collective skepticism, it's really an understanding that, you know, if we're going to engage with these power holders, it's because we're going to engage with them on our terms and we're fully understanding that trust within these networks is situated within a system of power. And because of that, we're going to recognize that our goals may be different from the goals, right, of these urban elites. It may be different from the goals of other community-based organizations in our neighborhoods, right? But we're going to approach this in a way that even if we have some skepticism, even if we have some mistrust that's rooted in all kinds of histories of, of dispossession and, and trauma, we know that we can gain some level of benefit and we can achieve some kind of goals that are important to us in our, in our communities. And so because of that, we're going to find ways to work together. Um, so trust is one important component that you mentioned, but another one would be social capital, right? Because they would have mm -hmm. to be able to have access to a certain population to um, really start to um, get, uh, gain motion and gain traction uh, in the efforts that they're putting forth to create change. Yeah, absolutely. So the other the other thing to think about social capital in the same way, and this happens with trust also, is that in our society, we tend to think that these are both really great, overly good things. <laughs> and we only focus on the positive aspects of both social capital and trust, which this is not to say that we don't, they're not important. They absolutely are. Trust is very important to all kinds of social relationships. So is social capital. But what I'm trying to show in the book and what I argue is that we need to be critical of these terms and really kind of see, all right, but how is it that social capital, and other scholars have pointed this out too, right? Social capital can also consolidate power and create barriers of exclusion, right? And how is it that trust is also serving to also consolidate power and create barriers of inclusion? And so in, in starting to critique these terms, starting to kind of say, all right, what, what might be this insidious underbelly that we tend to ignore? Might we take a step back and instead of saying, okay, we need to build trust, we need to build social capital, might it make more sense for us to say, let's use collective skepticism as a concept and a tool for thinking about how we can build coalitions that actually ensure a more socially just city, that aren't just about building trust, but are actually about transforming right, what these cities look like for marginalized populations. Which then leads us, leads us to different models and how to build communities um, revitalized because the basis of this was on gentrification of uh, of these Chicago neighborhoods, also mm -hmm. also known as urban redevelopment, and the resistance that communities have, particularly when urban redevelopment takes place in the vision of people who have large amounts of clout and are um, in power, but not redesigning it in the uh, in the image of the people who already live there. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's that's true. <laughs> yes, 
And uh, these models uh, that you uh, wrote about were growth-based asset model and the asset-based model of of redevelopment, not redevelopment, excuse me, of development. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about these two different models. Yeah, yeah, of course. So we can understand the growth-based model as really primarily a place-based kind of initiative, right? So what that means is that it it really focuses on increasing either a city or a neighborhood or a town's wealth through a variety of mechanisms. So this might include tax subsidies to keep or attract businesses, um, various different beautification efforts, you know, greening activities, um, and then also attempts to really try and attract a higher earning worker. And that's that's key to this model. So the model really focuses exclusively on physical development, that's the place-based component, but then also attracting or retaining these high-salaried workers who ultimately can increase the local tax base and then the city coffers, right, for for the local local city base. In this growth-based model, there really isn't a focus on um, developing the skills of residents or increasing resident ownership of their communities. So what can end up happening is that because it's only focused on like on growing local wealth, on focusing on development to increase that local wealth, lower income residents are often displaced in the model. So in Chicago, um, it's content, like many cities is contending with rising property values, and there's few mechanisms in place that that are that will ensure residents aren't displaced, right? And then when we think about the asset based model, it it emerged as kind of a response to this growth based model. Um, and there's a variety of different kinds of development initiatives that fall within it, but it's both a people and a place-based approach. Um, so it focuses more on identifying and developing what we consider, can consider the assets, skills, and gifts of both physical landscapes and structures. So like the buildings, the streets, the kind of framework of the city, town, or neighborhood, but also the people who live in the community, right? So it attempts to increase residents' uh, access to their wealth but also their ownership of their communities. And then because of that, theoretically, it should not lead to gentrification or displacement. Now, part of what I I say in the book is that, and this is true, right? Most development initiatives don't follow, like they're not solely a growth-based model or they're not solely an asset-based model. They may be a combination. It may be something that's new that emerging. But just to give you an example of how this might look on the ground, so as I mentioned, uh, my home community of Pilsen is gentrifying. It's kind of started gentrifying in the early 2000s, stopped, and now it's like full force again. So as a response to this, residents came together to implement a land use committee, and they were tasked with ensuring that any new developments would require 20% affordability rate, right? So any new developments in this, um, it was like a, a, a condo kind of building, any of those new develop, any of the new units would require 20% affordability. So on the surface, it seems this is a great asset-based approach, right? You're ensuring there's some um, retaining of affordability for the community. We have a land use committee in place. We're going to oversee this. It sounds wonderful. In practice, however, what was considered affordable ended up being at the high end, if not way above community member salaries. So they use county level median income data, not neighborhood level. Um so there was a new development that occurred on 18th Street around 2009. It was um, slated to be 18th Street's kind of the main small business thoroughfare that cuts through the entire neighborhood. 
and it was slated to be built on one of the, the empty lots there. And when I went in to inquire, kind of like, how does this work? You know, how does one access the, afford the affordable units? Um, I was told that realistically, and this was told to me by the nonprofit running it, that realistically, you would need a minimum income for a single person of $50,000 to even be able to get into any of the units. And most household incomes in the neighborhood at the time, the household incomes, not individual, were 35000 so this already right cuts out this affordable building from even being right affordable to folks in the neighborhood. It becomes affordable for other folks. Also, um, so we have kind of that issue. The other one was that most of the people on the land use committee were appointed by the local alderman and he wanted them to rubber, rubber stamp any developments that either he or the mayor's office gave the green light to. So if it had an affordability rate or not, he didn't care. If he said he wanted it to be built, then they would just rubber stamp it and move it along because they didn't want to disrupt that relationship with the alderman. So this is how an attempt even to kind of, you know, institute some level of asset-based development into an initiative or into a community can get superseded by that growth-based model because at the end of the day, it is always about increasing, um, you know, the, the price of land and attracting those higher income workers. And is also a great example of how social capital and trust can uh, can also result in um, horrible things. Yes, absolutely. So one of the uh, uh, one of the things that you saw in Chicago at the ground level is you you saw a sign that read "Building a New Chicago." The skeptical side of me makes me wonder who Chicago was really being built. Is this another example of uh, uh, of your experience in Pilsner and the gentrification there, uh, potentially also occurring in Greater Englewood and and also Little Village? Yes, this is a really excellent question. Um, <laughs> thank you for asking it. As uh, as soon as you asked it, I had the image of one of the billboards in my head. So I, I oftentimes wonder the same thing, and I wonder every time I go back back to the city. So. So much of Chicago is gentrifying, and so many residents in communities of color are terrified of their communities gentrifying. I heard this consistently, not only in Pilsen, but in Little Village, in Greater Inglewood, and elsewhere, that residents and activists were trying to find ways to prevent gentrification or to kind of sidestep it a little bit or to ensure that it was just a little bit of gentrification and not full <laughs> gentrification because they were so worried. Um, even with that, though, even with housing prices and property taxes in a lot of areas increasing, this is also a city with really deep activist roots. And I was just back in Chicago in May to visit my mom after not being there for two years because of COVID. And I was really struck by even with all of this, the rising housing prices, right, the the efforts that are, you know, these anti-poverty efforts that are happening in the city, even with all of that, this is still very much a black and brown city. And this is really, really credited to the amazing work of local activists across the city to ensure that power holders don't displace residents of color, that communities of color are represented in the cultural landscape, and that you know, a variety of different kind of folks, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of race, regardless right, of ethnicity, are able to still live and thrive in that city. So when we were there, for instance, on Michigan Avenue, this is the large kind of like upscale shopping district in the city along the lakefront. 
there was a large Black Lives Matter mural um, just indicating, right, the city's commitment and also residents' commitment to, right, trying to create a more socially just space. And there's also other efforts across the city to highlight this diversity. However, right, this representation also happens right alongside continued support of policies and actions that disenfranchise and terrorize communities of color. And the city, you know, it's such a complicated place, but so many folks within Black and Brown Chicago really refuse to be disempowered and they refuse to be displaced and they continue to do the work to create that more socially just city. And so when I see these billboards, even though I get, I do also get that level of skepticism and that critique, I'm also filled with a level of hope because I know so many people are on the ground doing this really important work. Yes, and even the people uh, in this uh, that that you observed and interviewed in this uh, for this book, for this research, um, had a desire for trust, but that that also resulted in greater mistrust among the people who represented a, a variety of organizations as well as these two neighborhoods. Correct? Yep that that is that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then this mistrust contributed to skeptic, skepticism which then uh, results in a failure of reciprocity among each other, which is what's necessary to, uh, to create change. So is that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that, that could, and it did happen in, in many of um, many of the neighborhoods and, and with some of the initiatives there, there were, you know, just feelings of frustration, right? Like these are shady people. Why am I going to keep working with them? And it was interesting because you differentiated, you, you studied two different neighborhoods and, and mm-hmm. they weren't one for one equal. They had some similarities, Greater Englewood and 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 uh, Little Village. I, I guess what, what were some of the main differences that you saw between these two communities? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background. Um, so Greater Englewood is, it's comprised of Englewood and West Englewood. Um, I combine them as one community because residents refer to them as one community. So I didn't see any reason in, in, you know, only focusing on one and not the other. So Greater Inglewood is predominantly African-American. It's politically fractured. So the way the city of Chicago works is they have aldermanic representation with one alderman, you know, kind of the political representative of one particular ward. And there's 50 of these wards across the city. Most neighborhoods fall into one at most two wards, Greater Inglewood, and then there's another neighborhood um, on the south side as well, is kind of fractured into these six different wards. So what that means is that there's no one political or two political representatives who are in charge of ensuring resources get funneled into this community. It's considered one of the most violent communities in the city. Um, It's, you know, oftentimes when folks discuss violent acts happening in the city. They're oftentimes referencing Greater Inglewood or highlighting actions that have happened within Greater Inglewood. It's also a space that has experienced deep levels of disinvestment from the city. So there were over 5,000 vacant and abandoned lots that were owned by the city um, just within the community. What that looks like is that when you go into the neighborhood, it's very empty um, because there's so many abandoned lots. You feel that emptiness as you enter to the point where I would drive through during rush hour and there would be very few cars on the street. One can drive from one end of the neighborhood to the next without really having to stop much where anywhere else in the city you're sitting for three hours in rush hour. You could also, if you walk down a block, 
there may be only one or two homes that are occupied. Others are boarded up or they've been knocked down and it's just an overgrown kind of empty lot. So it, it has experienced various levels of, of disinvestment from the city. They closed, uh, I think, around 10 schools um, over the past 13 years within the community because of this loss of population and because you know of underperformance and all these reasons they give. So that's kind of, you know, just to give you a sense of, of Greater Inglewood. And then Little Village is, all, is another neighborhood that's considered you know, the second most violent neighborhood in the city compared to Inglewood. Um, it's predominantly Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant. It's unlike Inglewood, it's very densely populated. Um, you, if, <laughs> if you go down the main thoroughfares, 26th Street, regardless of the time of day, you're going to be stuck in traffic for quite a while because it's so densely populated and there aren't really a lot of major streets that run through it. Um, it's, as I mentioned, experiences high levels of violence. It has low rates of education levels, similar to Greater Inglewood. Also, um, high poverty rates, similar to Inglewood. Unlike Inglewood, it's mostly within one ward, although parts of it are within a second and very tiny parts are within a third. Um, and what that means is that a lot more resources get funneled into the community. What happens in Inglewood is that sometimes resources get funneled in and then they get funneled out um, for a variety of reasons. We see some of that happening in Little Village, but not to the extent. Um, both Little Village and, and Inglewood are considered on the south side, but Inglewood is more deeper south along the east side, closer to the lake, and Little Village is more west um, and more of an industrial area. It's, this is home to a lot of the highways. There's There have been a lot of um, large-scale industry that's either located or relocated there. So, yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, how the city is designed and the population who lives there, I, I think, has an impact on what organized skepticism looks like is, is, is that right? Or at least did you see much of that when you were moving back and forth between the two communities? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So collective skepticism and, and greater Inglewood happened more between, you know, there was much more of a willingness of local activists and residents to work with city hall and with city officials um, there was also a greater openness. Um, so for instance, when I started doing field work, I began first in Greater Inglewood because I thought it would be harder and I thought it would take me more time because I'm, you know, a racial outsider. I hadn't really spent much time at all in Inglewood, Greater Inglewood prior to, to starting research. So I just assumed this is going to take me a lot more time. And folks there were a lot more open and welcoming. Not to say they weren't skeptical of me. Like, I don't. I don't want to give like this, you know, rosy pictured. No, they absolutely, as they should, right, held me accountable also. But they were much more willing to network and to, you know, work with folks to try and get their goals realized. In Little Village, it was a slightly different story. Again, I assumed it would be much easier. It was because I'm a racial insider. I, when I, you know. We first lived in Little Village when I was a baby and before we moved to to Pilsen. I, Little Village is right next to Pilsen, right? Like I would walk back and forth to see friends growing up. So I'm very comfortable with the community. I know the neighborhood. I, you know, I can walk around it without getting lost. But it was, again, understandably so, activists and residents and community organizers were what were much more suspicious of the work that I was doing, but also of other outsiders as well who would come in 
because to their credit, they wanted to ensure that they were limiting exploitation of the community. They wanted to ensure that whatever partnerships, whatever networks they were developing, whatever people they were agreeing to work with, that there would absolutely be some level of mutual benefit. Now, this was the same case in Greater Inglewood, but there was just a different level of openness there to those relationships. Because I also saw people who would come in but not be willing to do the work, and then folks would just stop talking to them, (laughs) and they would kind of go away. Whereas in Little Village, there was more of a process of, of... entering into that space and, and engaging in conversation. But then once you were in, right, then they, they would start being a little bit more open with you. So there was that aspect to it. But in terms of working with the city um, and with other organizations, both, you know, with local nonprofits um, that I worked with and grassroots organizations that I worked with, they equally engaged in collective skepticism in similar ways, right? They equally approach this as very pragmatically, how are we going to use these relationships to realize certain goals, um, whether that goal is to promote our organization and attract more political clout and ensure that we can be decision makers at the city level, or if that goal is to ensure, right, certain development goals for our residents, uh, you know, certain um initiatives that will address environmental racism, for example, certain initiatives that will build local wealth, for example. So as long as those relationships help to meet their goals, they were willing to enter into them. In some cases, a little bit more, you know, engaging with collective skepticism. In other cases, just fully embracing those relationships because, you know, aligning yourself with power comes with all kinds of lovely things, right? Yeah, so- so so situational trust is what you're referring to here, not just fully engaging trust and, and saying no matter what, it, it depends on the situation at, at hand. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of really thinking through like, what what am I going to get out of this? Is this important for me to trust in this particular situation? And that doesn't necessarily mean in five minutes, I'm going to still trust you, right? It's just this situation requires it. And we'll see from there. And then there's uh, two wards, uh, several other wards, I'm sure, uh, in Chicago also have these. But you, you wrote a, a bit about the new community programs and the local initiative support corporation. Uh, what are these things? Uh, <laughs> and what do they represent for the wards in Chicago? Yeah, so the local initiative support corporation, um, it's it's a national redevelopment intermediary, which basically means that they operate as a go-between between public and private funders and community organizations to help realize community-based redevelopment. And they've been around since the late 70s. They are, you know, have funding from the Ford Foundation. Um, they operate in, I think, 45 states across the U.S. So they, they have really emerged as a redevelopment expert within the development kind of field. And then the New Communities Program was a partnership with the Local Initiative Support Corporation. They also go by LISC, um, the City of Chicago, and the MacArthur Foundation. So the MacArthur Foundation is like this big philanthropic organization that, you know, they fund the MacArthur Genius Grants and like all of these um, other initiatives that mainly are Chicago-based, but they also do a lot of other stuff nationally um, as it relates to issues of social justice primarily. So this was this partnership that kind of emerged in the late 90s to rethink how is development going to operate in the city? How can we 
target resources into some of the most disadvantaged communities in the city and try to spur some level of redevelopment. And so that's where we then get the new communities program. So the new communities program was this 10-year initiative started in around 2002, ended around the end of 2012, that had an initial $50 million investment that ballooned to over $900 million, targeting 16 communities of color across the city, the north side, west side, south side, what have you, to then really say, how can we tap into local nonprofits, train them, funnel resources into those nonprofits and then the communities to really spur resident-inspired, resident-led redevelopment. So in an ideal, it's sort of an inner, the uh, new community programs as well as this, uh, as well as LISC serve as an intermediary between uh, developers, the um, local government, and the people who live in these communities, along with the organizations that are located there? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there somewhat of an illusion in this partnership that is created by the by the new community programs and local initiative support corporation uh, in some of the cases? Um, yes, absolutely. So <laughs> what right, what ends up happening? So the thing to keep in mind is that the new communities program, it uses it used a lot of language of building deep relationships of trust. It was very much rooted in theories of social capital. Um, for you know, building these relationships with nonprofits and the city, and really creating a coordinated effort to address long-term right social inequality, sounds wonderful. And to their credit, they did do a lot. I, I don't want to dismiss the really great work they did. They did do a lot of really great work, particularly around building those relationships. Um, and and a lot of the language that they used really resonated with and and drew on kind of these asset-based models of redevelopment. But part of what happened is that because they were an intermediary, because they're this go-between between all these entities, they didn't want to upset anybody and that was part of this relationship. So that means, you know, if the city wants to continue kind of engaging in what ends up being very racist and classist policies, right, that continue to disenfranchise, African-American, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, and what have you, populations in the city, and they are against advocacy work or they're against certain kinds of development in these neighborhoods, LISC was very constrained in in that they didn't want to upset that relationship and they truly believed in their model. And so they would discourage, you know, the, the nonprofits they worked with in their networks from really challenging a lot of things or from engaging in activist work. They did not engage in any activist or advocacy work. That, that They were very upfront. We are not um, an active advocacy organization. We are a development organization, which is fine, right? That's kind of their, their goal. And that makes sense. But then to also pass on, you know, messages to the nonprofits that like, well, if you want to pursue that, we can't help you because it's going to disrupt this relationship <laughs> with our friends at City Hall or with the foundation or, you know, the City Hall or the foundation isn't too excited about or whatever. Any of their other funders aren't excited about certain initiatives. So we kind of have to move on. Even if that initiative is successful, even if residents were very excited about the initiative, even if it was a really, you know, well thought out development project that would bring a lot of resources to the community they were very constrained. And then there was also this, this expectation that because they're the, inter- they're the intermediary, they kind of operate in the background 
which then means that the nonprofits that are working with them end up taking all the fall if anything goes wrong. So they're, they're advocating for these relationships of trust, for building what they call deep relationships of trust, but they were unwilling to make themselves as vulnerable in that relationship as they expected these nonprofit organizations to make themselves. And they were unwilling to really budge on questioning and challenging some of these decisions coming out of City Hall that didn't really you know, support this effort to address long-term social inequality in the city. And sometimes the uh, the developers as well as City Hall ended up benefiting um, monetarily more than what the nonprofit organizations did. It, was that one of your findings? Um, in some cases, but not necessarily. So again, right, this is where this is where I think the the new communities program did do a good job of of connecting folks to these networks. So what we see happening with many of the nonprofits that worked with the new communities programs, they, the nonprofits themselves, not only received access to political leaders and decision makers in the city, they also gained access to other power networks that meant that they were considered initially or, or only on any new kind of funding dollars that came through. They were able to access a lot more grant money than previously. They were able to grow their organizations, um, experience some level of further professional development and what have you, you know, invited to do things at the city level, not just at the neighborhood level. So it did, you know, pull them into this broader um network of governance that was happening at the city more so than like it's that that was only for the nonprofits in the network though that was not extended <laughs> to nonprofits outside of the network right and uh, the importance of city hall is part of this political machine that exists in, in little village and in, in greater Englewood though and the political machine I think is the power that the um that the, that the alderman has, but but not so much the, the alderman, but also, you know, the mayor of the city and what is expected um, of the alderman uh, to make things happen within their, within their ward, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so how has the streamlined the, the uh, organization, uh, which has result, which resulted in secondary agencies and residents of the communities seeing fewer overall resources available to contribute back to their community. How has this relationship impacted the way in which these uh, localities work in order to create progress in their cities? Yeah, so like many places, (laughs) Chicago is a complicated city, and currently it's in a moment of transition. Um, So under Mayor Daley, which is this new communities program emerged under kind of the end of Mayor Daley, the seconds, um, long term uh, as mayor. So under him, at local representatives, which as, as you mentioned, Ray, in Chicago are called aldermen, they were primarily beholden to the mayor's office. So that meant that they wouldn't make decisions that w- went against Daly's wishes. So in Little Village, this meant that certain projects like building a new park um, were discouraged And then in Greater Inglewood, um, which I mentioned is fractured along these six lines, this meant that some projects were pushed through without community input, and then they ended up failing. Um, And then under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor after Daly, 
we saw the impacts of that machine in covering up the murder of Laquan McDonald, right? So there have been attempts to disrupt this machine, and there have been attempts to um, to try and and get new voices at the table who can start making decisions, but it's going to be a really, really long process. Both Little Village um, and Greater Inglewood, like much of Chicago, again, this goes back to that activist history, they house a number of local community-based and grassroots organizations. So in Little Village, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, or Alvejo, um, they're an environmental justice-oriented organization. They took on the task during this time to kind of address some of this like machine politicking, right, of pushing for the remediation of a Superfund site and ensuring that contaminated homes were fixed. And then they ensured that, that a, a much-needed park that residents wanted was built on this site after remediation. And then in Greater Inglewood, the Resident Association of Greater Inglewood, um, which is, it was at the time, this volunteer only um, kind of strong group of anywhere between, you know, 60 to 70 residents at a time with five core organizers. So they were really instrumental in in building local Black wealth through a lot of different initiatives. Um, and in the book, I highlight their work on the Large Lot Program, which was a, a program that basically meant any of the homeowners in Greater Inglewood could buy any vacant lot on their block for a dollar. So as I mentioned previously, Greater Inglewood has had over 5,000 city-owned vacant lots. There were more vacant lots that were privately owned, but city-owned 5,000. This initiative that Rage helped push through and help lead meant that if you owned a home on a block and you saw you know, uh, an empty lot across the street or down the street, you could then buy it for a dollar and it's yours to do whatever you want. 15 years, you have to hold five years, I think it's five years, not 15, you have to hold on to it. And then you can sell it at the end and whatever you sell it for, you get to keep. Um, the city and then um, the the nonprofit that worked in the, with the new communities program, they continued to provide workshops on ways to kind of creatively redevelop those lots. So these were ways that local nonprofits, residents and grassroots organizations were recognizing how the machine was limiting resources to their communities and saying, all right, we're going to disrupt this in these ways, either by working with the city to get something pushed through or doing a whole lot of community organizing to try and ensure right, residents' desires are are upheld. Well, allowing, the, allowing individuals from the community to build up their community where there might be greater trust available and buy-in as compared to a developer coming into the community uh, who doesn't have the same level of buy-in from from members in those neighborhoods. Absolutely. This is exactly what it is. So um, a couple concepts that uh, popped up uh, in your uh, in your book were poverty pimping and keeping it real. You mentioned a bit about Levejo. Um, however, Rage was also another, uh, another uh, community organization, I think, that... Uh, uh, played a strong role in the community. So I guess, uh, could we? St- what is poverty pimping? Yeah, so <laughs> poverty pimping, this is when organizations, and we see, I mean, this happens, we see commercials for some of these organizations, right? They use the poor basically to get money. Um, so they typically use stereotypical images of the poor as violent or unruly or in somehow need of saving from themselves. Um, And it situates the organization as the savior of these poor victims. 
as I say in the book, one community member, you know, said to me that if there weren't any problems, there weren't there wouldn't be any grant money, right, for the, these programs to exist. And so poverty pimps really kind of own that statement and they can at times overinflate the social issues that are occurring, right? That they are the ones who can solve these are all these social issues and they are the ones who can solve them. So they need money in order to get those social issues solved. So in in essence, right, um, it's a poverty pimp's advantage to continue highlighting harmful stereotypes of the poor and to continue pathologizing the poor because that ensures that their organizations are sustained. Um, And then when we think about um, Alvejo and rage, so what I found... um, in the book is that organizations like Alvejo, who's the environmental organization, and then RAGE, which was the resident-led organization, but then also another organization I talk about is Sustainable Inglewood. So they did, right, they were very critical of poverty pimps. They were also critical of another kind of approach called keeping it real, which was almost a response to poverty pimping, right? So keeping it real is, it takes asset-based community development to like the extreme and says, community members must be involved in all decisions and, you know, all solutions to local issues must only be found in the neighborhood. So they were critical of both of these models and were really a lot more pragmatic. So they used their networks. Um, Again, they were very smart about tapping into networks, finding out who could help them solve these issues to ensure that their their local-led initiatives were successful. So we see this in the case of Sustainable Inglewood. They partnered with Northwestern University's Law Clinic and they were able to disrupt the expansion of a freight yard by a local rail company that was trying to um, expand by using tax dollars from the city and buy up you know, local homes for diminished rates and not provide any you know, kind of um, initiatives to community members. So they were able to, to disrupt this expansion and forced an agreement between the rail company and residents that required pollution control equipment on 36 trucks. Um, They required them to install clean engines or diesel filters on their lift equipment because they were very, very concerned not only about noise pollution, but um, air pollution that was increasing in their community. And they also required that the company provide 2 million towards neighborhood programming, right? So they they said, we're not going to we're not going to keep it real to get this done, right? We don't have the the legal expertise to really understand this, and we need to talk to um, local environmentalists to know what kinds of things we can we can ask for. And so they did, but they also are not in you know interested in perpetuating poverty uh, narratives of poverty, right? And and pathologizing poverty. And so then I, when we think, oh, go ahead. Oh, so I enjoy this uh, this pendulum or this uh, continuum. Uh, between this growth-based asset model and the asset-based model of development, i.e. either poverty pipping or keeping it real, but instead all acts somewhere, falling somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see this, you know, I provided a million and one example, not really yes. right in the book, but just to, to really drive home what this means, right? So previously I mentioned this park in Little Village that Alvejo um, were working on. So what they ended up doing, again, because they're trying to figure out how to get real goals and and real, you know, tangible things for community members and saying, we're going to take on this park initiative 
they realized that 170 residents' homes, right, are the lands contaminated, pollutants had leached into their homes when it would, when um, the basements would flood or their, their yards would flood, people would get rashes. They were terrified about, you know, what this means. And this had been going on for well over a decade. So rather than saying, again, you know, we're going to either trust the process or all throw up our hands. We don't know what to do. They're like, okay, we're going to fix this because this is a this is an issue in our community. We're going to make sure it's addressed. We've tried contacting the EPA. They are doing nothing about it. We've tried contacting the city. They're doing nothing about it. So that means we have to collectively organize, tap into our networks, be strategic, and get this thing addressed, which they were then able to do, right? Because they got legal representation from Sierra Club. They partnered with a variety of local and national organizations. So they're able to get right the land deemed as being, you know, a super fun site, get it remediated, get the homes clean, and get that that beautiful park that residents during right this new communities program highlighted as the most important thing that they wanted for their neighborhood because they didn't have enough green space. This grassroots organization that was not getting support from the city, not getting support from LISC, not getting support from the new communities program was able to get that to happen because they were strategic and smart and tapped into those networks, right? And and they they were able to 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 organize residents in this way. This has all been great. Unfortunately, we're um, at that point uh, in the interview where where I have to you know, answer, ask this last this last dying question that I have. Um, what are you What are you working on now, Dr. Gonzalez? What's uh, Where is this research taking you uh, to to your next study? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I just wrapped up a project primarily because of COVID <laughs> in rural, kind of small rural, deindustrialized towns that looks at the role. Part of what emerged in in doing the work in Chicago was that the role of narrative was really influential and kind of leading some of local policy. So I looked at, at what that meant in, in kind of rural America, particularly in rural America with growing uh, Black and, and Latina OX communities. And I am just now starting three months in um, a new project. And it's, it's the beginning of what I'm considering is probably going to be a five-year project that looks at the various ways that Black and brown communities engage in leisure and public forms of playfulness as a way of building community and social cohesion and kind of reclaiming public space in a variety of interesting ways. I am, I've been wanting to start this project for the past five years and I'm excited that I've finally, I've finally been able to start it. And, and so far, um, it's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm happy that I'm now looking at, at not only, um, you know, how people respond to kind of, you know, inherently uh, racist policies, but also in, in kind of really interesting and meaningful ways, but also how they bring joy to their lives and playfulness and engage in leisure. So it's, I'm kind of shifting into this new direction, which is super fun. Are you going back to Chicago for that study or? No, I I have decided to root it in, in Massachusetts. I'm in Massachusetts now. So as an ethnographer, it makes it a little bit easier. But I'm I've started doing work in Lawrence, Massachusetts, with which is a growing predominantly um, Dominican and Puerto Rican community with some, you know, there's there's also historic, you know, kind of white worker community that was tied to the mills. There's some, you know, Central American and Mexican American community there as well, and also a small growing um Black, both African-American and African 
um, community, then also Afro, Afro Latino X um, community as well. So that's where we've started. I will, I will probably um, for now keep it in in Massachusetts. But the seed of this, similar to the previous project, the seed of this was really planted in just doing the work in Chicago because a lot of what activists were doing there was, you know, it was a lot of really good, hard, difficult work. And they still found ways to bring joy and happiness and playfulness into a lot of what they were doing. And it, it reminded me that not not all of this work is 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 as serious and depressing as it seems like it is. Well, that's what I enjoy most about research is the fact that doing the research almost paves the path to the next project. Yes, absolutely. It right. It, it's what it should do, right? It should be get more and more questions. And there's always more questions than answers, at least for a sociologist. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you again for your time. Uh, this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I hope to talk to you soon, Dr. Gonzalez. Thank you so much.